0: You're tuned in to the Kojo Nam, show on WAMU 88.5. Welcome. Last week, we held our third ever Kojo in Your Virtual Community event via Zoom. The topic this time, racial disparities in the pandemic. WAMU's Jeremy Bernfeld assisted me again by moderating and sharing the questions from the hundreds of attendees. A quick programming note. Our next Kojo in Your Virtual Community will be Tuesday, June 30th. Details on this event will be posted to KojoShow.org, so look out for that. And a reminder, today's show is pre-taped, so we won't be taking calls or reading your questions or comments from social media during the broadcast. The coronavirus knows no boundaries. It has affected every community in the Washington region, but not at the same rates. Existing social inequalities in this country have increased the rate of COVID-19 infection and fatalities among communities of color and in communities already disadvantaged by poverty. The pandemic has also highlighted inequities in access to quality health and preventative care, which has fueled the racial disparities in the public health crisis. So how did we get here and how do we make sure vulnerable communities are better prepared if there's a second wave of the coronavirus? Let's find out. Welcome. Welcome the racial disparities in the pandemic, I'm Kojo Namdi. This Kojo in Your Community is presented by Sibley Memorial Hospital, Johns Hopkins Medicine. We appreciate their support of this broadcast and of WAMU. Joining us now, Maria Gomez, the president and CEO of Mary's Center, a clinic she founded over 30 years ago that initially provided prenatal and postpartum care to Latino women living in D.C.'s Ward 1. The clinic provides much more than that today, which we will discuss shortly. She is joining us from her office in D.C. Marie Gomez, thank you so much for joining us.
1: Good evening, Kojo.
0: Dr. Christopher King is an associate professor and chair of the Department of Health Systems Administration at Georgetown University. He's joining us from his home in Ward 5. Dr. King, thank you for joining us.
2: Thank you, Kojo. It's a pleasure to be here.
0: And Dr. Sharita Golden is a professor of medicine and the vice president and chief diversity officer at Johns Hopkins Medicine. She joins us from her home just outside of Baltimore. Dr. Golden, thank you for joining us.
3: Thank you for having me.
0: Dr. Golden, I'll start with you. Nationally, black people account for 13% of the population, yet... We've accounted for 24% of COVID 19 deaths. That means that black people are dying at a rate about two times higher than our population, and some studies suggest the rate is even higher. And in DC, where African Americans are 44% of the population, black people represent 75% of COVID deaths. Dr. Golden, how has this happened?
3: when the the pandemic first started, a lot of the focus was on the fact that African-Americans, other people of color have more comorbidities like diabetes, cardiovascular disease, obesity, and lung disease. But I think we really have to step back and ask ourselves, why do those individuals have a higher risk of those comorbidities? Because the disparities that we're seeing in COVID-19 aren't really new. It's just that COVID is killing people at a higher rate, so it's just more visible. And so I think we have to really look at, um, I think of these things in three buckets. So one is the um, medical and scientific contributors to disparities So um, there has been a history of experimentation on communities of color without their consent that started during slavery and even continued in the post-Civil War era. And so that has led to a distrust in the medical system. So even those of color who have insurance, have access, you know, may feel uncomfortable coming to see the physician. Um, because of how they're treated in the system. Um, and in addition, there um, are really a dearth of um, Black doctors to care for our vulnerable populations, because following the Flexner Report in 1910, we had the closure of uh, many medical schools, because medicine went from being a trade school to being more evidence and scientifically based. But what that meant for those medical schools educating Black doctors, that out of the seven that were there, five were closed. So after 1910, there was only Howard and Meharry left at a time where we didn't have access to predominantly white medical schools. So there aren't enough doctors of color to take care of the population. And so all of those things have led to many African-American patients having biased experiences in the healthcare system. Um, And then I think about the social contributors. And so these are um, things like redlining, predatory lending practices, discrimination in federal housing loans that led to housing instability, a lack of investment in neighborhoods where African-Americans were living, and um, a lack of investment in school systems. So consequently, these neighborhoods then have very poor walking spaces, so um, it's very difficult to do physical collectivity. They have poor access to healthy food. And so all of those things increase the risk for chronic diseases as well. And then the third thing is that African-Americans have been more exposed to COVID. And that's because um, it's not uncommon in our communities that we have had what are considered essential jobs, um, where we're working in the food sector, the transportation sector, the security sector. So those communities have had to go to work, often without proper PPE, using public transportation, which increased their exposure to COVID. And then, of course, many people are living crowded, multi-generational housing. And then there's an overcrowding and representation of African-Americans in our crowded prison system. So all of these things have led to increased exposure. So if you have these pre-existing conditions and then you end up with more exposure to COVID and you get the infection, you tend to do more poorly and die at a higher rate. So really, it's the structural racism that's contributed to the disparities that we're seeing.
0: Dr. Christopher King, as I mentioned earlier, Black people in the district represent a staggering 75% of COVID deaths. You and your team recently released a report that looked at health disparities in the Black community here in D.C. What did you find? And I should point out that this data is pre-COVID
2: information. Yes, thank you for for saying that. Uh, That's important uh, to note. So overall, when we look at the health of the the District of Columbia, we look really good. But when you stratify data by race and ethnicity, there's a totally different narrative there. Uh, for example, uh, African Americans in the districts are in the district are seven times uh, the rates for diabetes are seven times higher than whites. Uh, heart disease, two times higher than whites, obesity, three times higher than whites residents who live in wards with high volumes of african americans wards 5 7 and 8 are more likely to be hospitalized for preventable health conditions we also looked at data by ward and i think one of the most stark um, disparities that we've we found was that there's a 15-year life expectancy between residents of ward 3 and ward 8. we looked at median household income uh, we know that median household income in residents um excuse me in, in African Americans is three times lower than whites in the district. And when we look at educational outcomes, um, um, African Americans who have an undergraduate degree or higher, it's about 25% versus 90% of whites. So uh, it's important to uh to know that and I'm glad that we did release this data pre-COVID because it'll be important for us to look at data um, moving forward, because we know that this has taken a significant toll on uh, Black communities, not only in the district but nationwide.
0: Um, could you repeat the disparities that you found between residents of Ward 3 and residents of Ward 8?
2: Yeah, so a 15-year life expectancy difference.
0: Between wards three and eight. Ward three, of course, being the most affluent ward in the city and ward eight being a low-income ward. Maria Gomez, Mary center is one of the area's biggest frontline healthcare providers for communities of color and the disadvantaged. How did it begin and how does it serve these vulnerable communities today?
1: So we started with, uh, thank you, Kojo, we started with um, serving the immigrant population back in the 80s. Um, when uh, the first wave of of, uh, immigrants from Latin America came, uh, particularly for pregnant women and and their children. Um, And now we are seeing people from all over the city. And and, uh, the idea is to make sure that we are focusing not only on the healthcare, but we're focusing on the social supports and the education of individuals. As we know that the structural inequities that Dr. Golden um, and Dr. King uh, were just talking about Um, have to do with poor health, poor education, poor justice systems that um, subjugate these populations to where they are today. So today, the the immigrant population that we're serving, um, um, you know, has better insurance than the District of Columbia, but we're still struggling in other other parts of of the region. Um, We are seeing that although they have health insurance, accessing the, the, the health that they need because of the language because of the hours that they work um, is difficult at times. Uh, we saw with COVID that, um, that they were the, the either the first ones to be uh, to be uh, laid off or they were not laid off. They were the highest at risk because the individuals, um, immigrants were subjugated. I'll give you an example of someone who um, you know, was uh, in construction and was actually uh, either you take the job with very little gear to take um, asbestos off of a building or you don't work.
0: Have the majority of your COVID-19 patients been people of color?
1: Yes, they have. Um, they have been, of course, we have a very large population of immigrants, uh, about 65 to 70% of our population are immigrants and we would uh, we have right now uh, more than um, half of our population that we
4: have tested has, has tested positive. Jeremy, we have a question. We do have a question. This is from Ginny and Adams Morgan. She asks about the role of food deserts, poverty, and racism can lead to limited food choices. That leads to chronic diseases and vulnerability to infectious diseases. What will it finally take to get healthcare providers, including the Department of Health, to realize that this is low hanging fruit and launch a massive public health campaign, at least as a first step. Dr. Golden. Yeah.
3: So that is an excellent question. And, um, you know, as a diabetes specialist, one time someone asked me, what is the most important intervention to end disparities in diabetes? And I said, it would be to fix the environment. And so I think that it's really important for us as um, physicians and for healthcare organizations to really advocate for legislation that directly addresses those disparities in healthcare. And in fact, um, I was speaking with one of our Maryland legislators about that yesterday. And so we actually need to legislate, if you will, a lot of those healthy practices, you know, into neighborhoods. So, you know, there should be like, there's there's a fire hydrant, you know, every so many blocks, there should actually be healthy food choices every so many blocks that do not require someone to get On a bus to access healthy food. And we also need to make it so that healthy food is affordable um, to the community. And, um, you know, one of the challenges is often what's available in food deserts is less expensive. So you get more dense calories for less money. But those are unhealthy calories that lead to chronic diseases. And so I think it's really important that the cost of eating healthy is not so high that it's not accessible to the communities.
0: Christopher King, anything you'd like to add to that?
2: Obviously, we're in an interesting moment right now in this country. Um, What it's going to take, I think, is in addition to legislation, is an investment in Historically marginalized communities, particularly communities of color, and what we're seeing right now is, is very very fascinating to me. We're seeing COVID nineteen and how it's impacting communities of color locally and nationally. We have the killing of George Floyd and 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 so many others that's been magnified, and that also is all part of this this this. The, it's all part. It's all connected. And then we have. Um, we have Donald Trump in the White House, right? And so so these issues are being magnified in ways that have not existed in the past. And to me, I think that there's promise. I I see that there's promise associated with, with where the country is and the conversations that we're having. But to go back to the question, it's going to take an investment in communities of color. And we're starting to see corporations, public and private sector, roll up their sleeves, and, and actually do some heavy lifting in this space.
0: Maria Gomez, throughout this pandemic, many people had to work. They couldn't have afforded not to, and they don't have the luxury of working from home. Who's coming to your clinic right now, and what situations are complicating things for them?
1: Yeah, so um, what we're seeing, I just want to go back to the to the food piece. One of the things that people are coming to us for is that they're hungry. They don't have a job, and they're hungry. Um, so that's a big thing. They are also, don't have a job, don't have money, and uh, either have become homeless or about to become homeless. So um, those are, the, those are the, the, the reasons that people are coming in, is they need that cash assistance for many of the immigrant populations, uh, and even people who, who just because of their job situations, they didn't get that stimulus check, um, or it got complicated and didn't get it. So many, many people were uh, cash for for money. Um, I think that the people that are also coming are people that the mental health, um, the stress for so many people that are poor and immigrant and people that are already had so much issues uh, at, uh, you know, in front of them in regards to immigration, this has really doubled up. Um, and what people are telling me and telling the providers is now that the streets are empty, they're even more scared, right? To walk in the street as an undocumented individual. So those are the stresses that us as regular individuals don't realize, right? Um, just coming to the clinic on an empty bus, on an empty street, um, is, is a fearful thing. And, and getting sick for, for some of our folks you know, in the city, many of our folks are, are, are insured, so that's a luxury. Uh, for some of the suburbs, uh, they're not. And so they're scared to come to a doctor uh, because of the bill, what, what is, how am I gonna pay the bill?
4: Jared, maybe have another question. This question is from Sarah. What can your average citizen do to help address these racially based healthcare disparities? Again, you, Doctor Golden.
3: So, um, so there, there are. I think there, there are many things, and so um, you know, it depends upon what environment you find yourself um, working in. I think that there are certainly things, for example, around food insecurity, Um, being able to, you know, donate to the local food banks. Um, many of the local food banks have been supporting the communities that have food insecurity during the pandemic that we've been talking about. Um, and, you know, being able to provide, um, resources for, um, vulnerable communities to receive fresh fresh fruits and vegetables. And so, for example, um, farmers market trucks that come into the community um, so that people don't, if there isn't a place to set up a garden, bringing those resources into the community. Um, I think it's also really important if you are in a position to have access to resources or companies that really want to directly impact the community, as Dr. King was talking about, is, you know, donating money to actually help fortify and build schools in a community and in a neighborhood and you know really um, having academic medical centers partnering with community-based organizations and nonprofit organizations to really begin to bring some of those resources to the to the community. Um, you know, I think some other things that are important because often the problem may seem so big, you feel like there's not anything specific that you can do. And um, I know for for me personally, mentoring the next generation of you know, future potential physicians, scientists, healthcare administrators is a passion. So, you know, one of the things I've been very involved with is a longitudinal high school student pipeline program um, that we have in Baltimore. And I know there are ones in the Washington area. You know, I've involved myself with their board and helped mentor students. So I think there's sort of small and large, there are small things you can do. But certainly if you know people who have resources to invest in the community i think that's important and then using your voice to advocate to our legislators to put legislation in place that will result in investment
4: into our communities jeremy we have another question this is a question from jim jim says in my area in maryland hispanics have a much higher rate of cases than even african-americans deaths is a different story where the rate of african-american deaths are higher any ideas why I'll start with you this time, Maria Gomez.
1: I do think that, um, that um, there's this tendency to think that um, Afro-Americans, for some reason, um, their bodies are much more vulnerable or something that, that um, allows them to, to die um, uh, much, much more than other uh, communities. But I think that um, going back to Dr. Golden and, <clears throat> and Dr. King, the years and years, um, 400 years of racism, has really um, uh, taken a toll on the afro American community. That um, that I think I I you know I want to say um, that 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 is the economic influences that that makes these decisions right. It's not that people's bodies are more vulnerable, or, uh, but that is the environmental situations in which people find themselves. You know the the, the poverty the part the, the um, the years and years of limited quality education for communities, and we're starting to see that um, as immigrants stay here longer, right? Um, the, the the amount of years that African Americans went uninsured without healthcare, right? The poor housing, um, the the inability to get mental health services for so many years, um, the food insecurity, and just the 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 uninhabitable uh, housing if you want to call it that um, that all has an impact on how the body really uh, reacts to situations like this
3: Dr Golden please yes, go ahead go please ahead. go ahead yeah i wanted to i wanted to add to that um, because one one thing that you know sort of early on in the pandemic it seemed to be you know it was older individuals and it's more you know that you were at high risk because you have poverty i think the other thing with African-Americans is that, you know, there are many African-Americans that have chronic diseases, you know, that put them at risk for a worse outcome with COVID. Um, and they, they haven't necessarily been exposed to the lower socioeconomic status or the housing insecurity. So, you know, what that really suggests is it's this exposure, this longstanding exposure to structural racism, even if you're educated in a higher socioeconomic status, that chronic stress, you know, can alter the body's immune response. It can cause changes in your genetic architecture to adapt to that environment that increase your risk for disease. So, you know, in addition to the social factors, there are these other biological factors, even independent of the socioeconomic status that likely are contributing as well.
0: This racial and economic disparity, Dr. Golan, unfortunately, is not unique to the D.C. region. Is it? Are the numbers just about the same throughout the country?
3: They are, unfortunately. And so if we look at like Richmond, which is just to the south of us, um, in Richmond, out of the COVID deaths, about 62% of them are African-American. And if we look at Chicago, my son goes to college outside of Chicago, 72% of the deaths are in African-Americans. And in Milwaukee, which was one of the first cities where this disparity was noted, 81% of the deaths are African-American. So this is throughout the United States. And the other thing that's very compelling, if you look at um, you know, the 40 states in the District of Columbia where we have data on race, that in the majority of those states and in specific cities where we have data, it is not uncommon for the rates of death among African-Americans from COVID to be anywhere from 20 to 30% higher than their percentage of the population. So this is really a national issue as Dr. King mentioned earlier.
0: And Dr. King, you describe what you do as bridging the gap between medical care with what's happening in the community. Can you describe what you mean by that? And how are you able to bridge this gap?
2: Bridging the gap between the healthcare delivery system and public health. So I always talk about in this country, we have done a pretty good job providing medical care. We have not done the best around providing healthcare, recognizing that my health is mostly shaped by the community in which I live, right? And so medical care uh, to me is defined as that I get the right preventive health services, I, that I, the, do I have the medication I need to stay well, do I have access to doctors? Um, and that's important. but what about the rest of my life? And do we have a system of care that is designed to meet the needs of patients holistically? And that requires us to bridge that gap between within the walls of the hospital or the healthcare delivery system, and community. So my work is around, you know, if we're if we're looking at patient needs and, and we know that a patient who is uh, being discharged uh, needs and they're going to a home where in which they're socially isolated. They don't have support. They live in a community that does not have the resources to keep them well. Perhaps they've even had a, a surgery. Um, how do you make sure that that patient when he or she is discharged has the resources that are necessary to keep them from coming back to the hospital. And that requires a different way of thinking. It requires a different way of how we organize and deliver systems of care. It requires us to develop partnerships with community-based organizations. Uh, It requires us to rethink funding and how funding is is allocated to, to support holistic needs of patients.
4: Jeremy Bernfeld. This is a question from Heather in Ward 1. What are two to three very specific programs, programs already funded by D.C. Council and around which there is a consensus on effectiveness that could make a measurable difference if increased five or tenfold? Maria Gomez?
1: Um, you know, health care really needs to be surrounded and embraced with um, social supports that really are meaningful. Like, for instance, um, when people come to to a marriage center like this, where we have the healthcare, the social services, that includes mental health and all of that, that we have dental health, that we have a charter school for both the parents and the children up to pre-K. Um, that is meaningful, that is why parents come and they take care of the diabetes. Because what, because when they come to Mary Center and they get their medication for diabetes, they're also um, talking to their provider or talking to the social worker about things that may be mundane to us, but for, a lot of populations with, that are really uh, financially under-resourced, things like internet. Internet, not just to watch movies, but actually to get their children the school that they need, right? We had people who had three kids, one computer, and couldn't afford internet. So they came to Mary's Center, how can you solve that problem? Um, Jobs, you know, we have to be uh, centers like this where we can actually get people jobs where they can feel that they are um, uh, doing something meaningful for their families and moving up that economic ladder, just like all of us. Um, learning English, assisting the family members with someone who's in the, in the system, the, the justice system. So, you know, how do, I get, how do I get a good lawyer so that my child who did something really insignificant can get out of jail? So those are the kinds of things that I think that we um, need to multiply, programs that, that really um, surround and partner with each other. One agency can't do it all, but for instance, at Mary Center, we have about almost 50 partnerships throughout the city, with from starting from universities to, to law firms to um, you name every other organization in the city, to make sure that we stretch that support for families when they come in and get their health care. That... Is exactly what gives us the best health
4: outcomes. Jeremy Bernfeld. This is a question from Michelle. Michelle asks So many immigrants lack health insurance. This has deterred many from seeking care, but even those that have sought it out now face large medical bills from the treatment of COVID 19. How can governments at all levels support both hospitals and patients with these financial debts? Dr. King?
2: Sure, um, so there's dollars that have been made available to support hospitals, especially in the District of Columbia, to make sure that uh, patients' needs are met. So that's, that's, that's important. I think that um, we have to continue to advocate for immigrants and those who are uninsured to be sure that they have access to the, the continuum of services that are necessary to keep them well. Um, when we're talking about COVID and COVID infection and given the high, it's such a highly infectious um, virus that this is going to require us to look at how dollars are allocated and and use emergency funds to meet the needs of patient populations. And we're seeing that in in the district and we're seeing it in other cities across the, the country because what has worked in the past will not work for what we're experiencing right now. This is a very, very unique situation that is requiring us to think outside the box and redistribute resources because it is a public health issue. Uh, Maria Gomez?
1: Um, in terms of, of this, I think that we need to make sure that um, we, again, be comprehensive in how we look at the person. Uh, there are people that, that, um, that qualify for Medicaid but they don't think they do, right? Uh, we need to make sure that they, uh, it's so many of our elderly um, who can qualify for Medicare, but the system can be complicated for them at times, right? Uh, so we want to make sure that we, we, we um, in, in terms of those bills, want to make sure that um, as part of the healthcare system that we advocate, um, both at the city council and, and at the federal level, that um, we need to do something about this because many people have gone hungry and homeless, because they're trying to pay their medical bills, and you're absolutely right—that is just—it's uh, unconscionable that that can happen in this country uh, at this time.
0: And Dr. Golden
3: yeah, and you know I would add, I think it's really important to make sure we're taking full provision of the the provisions of the of the cares act to make sure that you know again, patients aren't being inappropriately charged for testing. I think it's also um important to think of providing the financial resources for the individuals who do test positive, you know who perhaps don't have a way to isolate. you know, I know that there are programs in the national capital region where there are hotels where people can isolate, where they don't have to pay for the time that they're there, but they're, they're safe. And, you know, I know at Johns Hopkins Medicine, we've been working with our partners, Um, down in the National Capital Region to do similar things to what we've done in the Baltimore region, but trying to make sure we can get food delivery to those who are isolating, particularly like our immigrant communities who may not have access to, say, some of the other public assistance that's available. So I think that we have to really um, think uniquely about how we can help defray some of those financial costs by using the resources that we have available in the system.
0: We're seeing massive, sustained protests here and around the country against racial inequity and police brutality. What are your thoughts, each of you, about how inequality in health care fits into this moment? Starting with you, Dr. Golden.
3: You know, it's interesting. I thought a lot about that in the last week, and um, you know, the, I think what's common is that the root of the inequities in healthcare and the inequities of the criminal justice system are the same. So it's really like this four hundred one years of structural racism, um, you know, that that perpetuate the way that people behave. So the same biases that there are in the healthcare system, that for example um you know ms gomez mentioned earlier that you know african americans are dying at a higher Rate. And part of that is because it was not uncommon that three times somebody went to the ED and said, You know, I'm coughing, I'm short of breath, I don't feel well. And they weren't tested and they were turned away. And then when they finally got tested and came in, they were so sick they were, they they passed away. And that's the same kind of bias that we have in our criminal justice system. It's the same bias in our educational system. So again, if we can really begin to dismantle the root cause and, um, you know, my father and my brother were at the 1963 march on washington and you know they were marching to get that legislation put into place i feel like now people are marching to change behavior and culture because you know rules don't change behavior you know it's sort of like culture and and really like rethinking you know how we deliver care how we do criminal justice how we do everything in our country
0: maria gomez yeah um
1: totally agree dr golden i think that i would also just add uh, something different and that is this is the opportunity Um, this is the opportunity to really think innovatively to really think of out of the box like Dr. King said and to think about um, what are some of the the things in the justice system and the healthcare system that we can continue to fund Um, maybe it's not defunding the police department but maybe it's saying how much of that funding can actually go to Ah, uh, community policing, as opposed to uh, putting people in jail, right? And um, it's not necessarily just take it all to the Social service Department, but how do we have a conversation that really talks about change? I think that this is one of those this is one of those times where I am so passionate, and I have, uh, have said to our community here at Mary Center that we will make this our mission. We will change policies in this country. That will enable everyone to be treated equally and we're not going to let anything stop us from doing that we're going to hold hands with the national organizations with community organizations with government with uh you know uh foundations and hold hands together to make sure that this does not end up like with the whole gun issue this has got to change systems have got to change to break up this racism in this country
2: dr king Yes, Kojo, I'm calling for major reform in the practice of medicine. Um, I say that because we still, if you look at how physicians are trained in this country, there's still this focus on race. And you look at the person's, the the color of their skin, and you make all kinds of assessments that are inappropriate or ill-informed, right? And so what we have to look at is the social context, the environmental context of individuals and the population and the communities in which they reside.
4: Jeremy Bernfeld. This is from Laura in Ward 1. She asks, what can we do to foster trust between communities of color and the healthcare system? Maria Gomez.
1: So um, the first thing I think, um, trust between communities of color and the healthcare system, I think that I would just say, um, I'm in the healthcare system and I would say that um, it is up to us in the healthcare system to actually, um, you know, when we say that the patient is not compliant, the patient is not compliant because we're not compliant with that patient. We are not open at the right hours. We are not um, giving them the time that they need um, to express and to have programs that are actually um, comprehensive. So we need to have um, a, a relationship. I would say to, to um, audiences that are listening to this, um, do not, do not uh, go to a doctor that you don't feel like you can discuss anything and everything without being judged. Um, we, as Dr. King said, you know, we need to make sure that, that we um, instill sort of a sense of, of um, opportunity for all children, all children, to be able to choose healthcare as a choice of, um, of field that they go into. Um, I think that, that it's not 100%, but if, if there were more people that looked like the, the people that, that they're serving, um, it, would, it, had, it would have a lot to do with the uh, outcomes of individuals. So.
0: And Dr. Golden, even today you hear African-Americans refer to the notorious Tuskegee study when it comes to trust in the healthcare system.
3: Yes, yes. And that and that, um, you know, is interesting for those on the listening in who may not be familiar. That was an experiment that was done in Tuskegee, Alabama, um, funded by the U.S. government, the public health service. It lasted for about 40 years and basically black men who had syphilis were followed as a natural experiment to see what would happen if the syphilis was not treated. And the problem with that is that penicillin was known for years to be a treatment and cure for syphilis, and they were denied that treatment. And then that not only happened in Tuskegee, Alabama, that also happened in Guatemala. It was the same physician that oversaw those studies. So now we have communities that are afraid because they feel that just getting a flu shot, which they need to keep them healthy is somehow an experiment. And so, there is just cause for people to think that way. And I think that's why some important solutions are we do need to have more um, black and brown physicians um, who are a part of the healthcare system. Um, It's been shown that race concordance in the doctor-patient relationship improves care. It improves um, participatory decision-making and engenders trust. And I think it's also really important that, um, you know, we, we actually um, teach patients how to be an advocate for their own health care and to ask the questions and teach our physicians how to receive that. So there are young physicians, this is an exchange and not a paternalistic relationship. And I think that will really help to um, go a long way in engendering trust.
0: Dr. King on the issue of trust.
2: Yes, absolutely. So a lot of my work is around working with hospitals and health systems to address issues like this. Trust. What does it take? It's going to take a shift in power, right? It's going to require leaders of these organizations to shift their power into communities and allow the communities to find their way and not have this, this mindset that we can save the day for a community of color. Uh, so. What does that take? Well, first, we got to look at the boards of directors of these institutions that are running healthcare corporations, right? And they do not look like me, many of them, right? And so what you have is you have people who are making decisions about communities of color and they're so disconnected from the day-to-day lived experiences of, of folk. So if we're going to address the trust issue, we need to be at the table. People of color need to be at the table And they need to know that they are part of the process and not recipients of a system that's just there to to benefit from them in the long run, right? So, So that's a big part of it. And one way that I've tried to help folks understand that is through this concept called learning journeys in which we take board leaders into communities of color, historically marginalized communities, and they literally go into people's um, living rooms and sit down and they look at the lived conditions of folks who live in apartment complexes that have not been kept up to par, and they, they have conversations with people. We, it's, it's one of the most powerful experiences that, um, that I've seen, actually, when it comes to helping people who really want to do the right thing but just haven't had the opportunity to, to do something in such a powerful, structured way.
0: As thousands march in the streets to protest the killing of George Floyd, as thousands flock to beaches and boardwalks like Ocean City and the overall reopening of our country, a lot of people are concerned about a second wave. Jeremy Burnfield, you have a question along that line.
4: That's right. As we anticipate the second wave of the COVID-19 pandemic, are there some lessons from the last three months that we can apply to these underserved communities to reduce the impact of the second wave. We have others asking questions, particularly in light of crowds here in Washington at the recent protests. Dr. Golden?
3: Yes. So if it's one thing I think that we've learned is that, you know, sort of the public health preventive measures were actually effective. So, the social distancing and the hand washing and the wearing the mask. I mean, I remember at the beginning of the pandemic in early March when our hospital and our health system were thinking, you know, how are we going to manage the number of patients that we're anticipating? And are we going to have enough resources and all of those things? And then the idea was by, you know, sort of closing things down for a period and socially distancing that we would bend the curve and flatten the wave. And that actually happened. We never reached a point where we didn't have enough resources and we were able to care for everyone that we needed to. So we know that those measures work. Um, And so I think that we need to do those measures. But I think in terms of protecting our vulnerable communities, we're still going to be more susceptible. I think with a second wave, we need to actually look and see, are the rates of infection, like that trajectory, is it is it higher in those vulnerable communities? And do we need to, you know, actually have them start re-putting these measures back in place sooner? And, um, you know, really looking at those things closely because sometimes I feel like there's almost a tale of two Americas. So there's sort of the privileged America where the rates of COVID are going down and the hospitalizations are going down. And then there's a tale of vulnerable America where that may not actually be happening. So very similar to Washington and to what, um you know, Maria Gomez has described in our Latino population and immigrant population in Baltimore, they're still getting quite sick and half of those tested are positive. So I think that in order to prepare, I think that we need to put measures in place for our vulnerable communities sooner rather than later, and making sure that we not only have mobile testing capacity ready to go to those communities in a second wave, but that we have the personnel to help do the medical follow-up and to also do the contact tracing. Um, I, I think that we could prepare now for what we would need to do in that situation.
0: Maria Gomez, from a perspective of someone in charge of overseeing multiple health centers in this region, what do we need to do to prevent this from happening again?
1: So we need to do a lot of education. Uh, We need to spread the word. We need to, um, you know, one of the things that we did just within our own health center is do a virtual introduction of how to wash your hands properly, right? So basic education, I think. If, I think we assume that everybody knows how to do that. Um, I think that that the other is to make sure that people understand the the things that Dr. Golden just talked about, about the masks, about the distancing, how important that is, to show, you know, very um, pictorial how how that um, happened and compare ourselves to other states that actually um, were in trouble um, for that. I think that. Um, The other is that we need to really focus on making sure that we advocate for the affordability of PPE, right? Because um, that is not affordable and it's not accessible to everyone. So we have patients that come here that are saying, you know, I can't return to work because I don't have a mask. Well, you know what? We need to really advocate to make sure that those construction companies, that those restaurants, that those places that people are doing bartering and and, uh, the cooks, um that those places actually provide the PPE.
0: Dr. King what do these communities need so they're better equipped to take on the next wave or the next pandemic for that matter?
2: So I think we've heard PPE that's really important and um I'll tell you when this when this all started you know Dr. Fauci and so many were saying get wear your mask wear your mask and I went to places where you would think you could find a mask I went to a Target I went to a CVS I went to a Walgreens no mask to be found i couldn't find any mask and the whole world was telling me to wear a mask right so those masks you need to be ubiquitous they need to be everywhere because we know they're very effective so that's one the other piece is around surveillance and and looking making sure that we are collecting data in real time and making that accessible uh so it took us a while to report data by ward now we're doing that i think we even need to go more granular than that we need to pinpoint Cases as quickly as possible, so that we can um, have the necessary target um, targeted interventions. So go be go as, as granular as we possibly can, so we know where cases are. And contact contact tracing is going to help us do that. Um, the other piece is around emergency funds to uh, support public health innovations that are led by organizations that do work in communities of color. Again, this goes back to the 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 being creative in how dollars are dispersed to address and support those individuals or those organizations that do work on the ground each and every day. They're very knowledgeable about what's happening in their local communities. That goes back to the shift in power, right? And and making sure that those dollars go into those the pockets or the or into the pockets of the organizations that can do meaningful work on the ground.
1: Hey Kojo, can I mention one thing really quick? I I, I be neglected if I don't do this. Um, I think that it's really, really important to make sure that we also push for internet that is accessible to everyone because the telehealth is the way that we have learned that people actually can access healthcare. Um, but without the internet, people cannot do telehealth. Um, and so I think that that's something that we are trying to push in this city.
4: What about young people? Jeremy Bernfeld, we have a question about that. This one's from Bernard in Washington. I'm a 23-year-old Black man, and I can say I know how serious COVID is and how dangerous it can be. There are many young adults and teens who do not take it as serious or see how their actions affect others, especially during these trying times with protesting and being quarantined for quite some time. What message can you put out there to motivate the younger generation to take this COVID issue more seriously? Dr. Golden, a lot of what we were hearing is about how people who are at risk or people
0: who are older or people who have compromised immune systems, which may have led some young people to believe that they themselves are immune from coronavirus.
3: Right. So, no, I think that that is is true. And so there's a couple of things we know. So one is that even if you are a young person and you get coronavirus or say you have it asymptomatically, just remember that you can transmit that even without symptoms to your grandparents, to your aunts, to your uncles, so those who are at risk. So you can become a vector. That's important to remember. And then we're now seeing in children this very unusual, like Kawasaki's-like syndrome where you know they have blood clotting and a vasculitis and it's very, very serious illness. So you know, with the experience in the United States, We're actually finding that just because you're young doesn't mean that, um, you know, that you are completely immune from COVID and its complications. But I think it's very important to remember that as a young person, you could be a vector to an older person who is at high risk. So we all need to exercise our, you know, responsibility. And it's difficult. It's summer. I have a 20 year old. I know how that is. But, um, you know, it's really, really important that we all have to take this as a social responsibility.
0: Dr. King reading from your report now. Findings of this report will inform policy making, advocacy agendas, appropriation of equitable resources and education for the general public. What are your hopes for this report and how do you think it might be able to change policy?
2: Yeah, my hope for the report is that it gets into the hands of 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 especially now that we have this this awareness of systemic racism and the impact that it has on on society, I'm going to go big picture, on society, right? And so my hope is that uh, the findings and the recommendations, there are recommendations in the report, will uh, stimulate conversation and action at both within the clinical systems of care and the healthcare delivery system, as well as the broader community. Um, Through those recommendations, and again, this is the second report, we've had so many uh, organizations reach out to us because they have been um, informed as a result of, of the report and its findings. So the goal for us is just to re- continue to refresh the data and, and provide information that will help organizations think differently about how they are organized, how they deliver services, how they're structured, who they actually partner with in the community, and that they are applying a racial equity lens in everything that they do.
0: Dr. Golden, I see you nodding in agreement. Is there something you'd like to add?
3: Yes, I mean, I think I like the statement Dr. Key made about, you know, a health equity lens and how we deliver health care. And, you know, I remember at the start of the pandemic, you know, I sort of felt like, you know, one of my important roles as a chief diversity officer is not just thinking about workforce diversity and inclusion, but our office also oversees health equity operations for our whole health system, which includes Sibley and the other hospitals in the region. And it was really important to me that in everything we were doing and responding to the COVID-19 pandemic, that we approached that with a health equity lens, that we made sure we were implementing the class standards, we were providing interpretation, you know, we were providing all of our education materials and all of the languages that are spoken in our health system, Um, just really making sure that we were giving those vulnerable communities the best experience.
0: Maria Gomez, we haven't discussed mental health. Mary Center offers mental health services. Have you been seeing a rise in mental health patients?
1: Oh, we can't keep up with it. the demand. It's just tremendous. Um, the, uh, from from just basic, you know, I'm scared. I'm concerned. Uh, to um, I'm suicidal. To children who um, of staff in of clients who are, are are saying to their parents, uh, "Mommy, am I going to get killed? Am I going to die? What happens if you die? Um, what happens to me?" Um, and so, with uh, with all the uh, all the protests in the African American community, um, and children that are mixed, right? Um, children, we have many, many children that are mixed in our community here, uh, and just and just feeling feeling the burden of being an immigrant but also being uh, black um, is is really really over um, over overbearing. It's just too much. Um, our staff is feeling the same way, and so we. We have staggered the staff so that they can do a lot of this by telemedicine, uh, having them to take time off. Um, but the resources are not there um, in terms of, of um, you know, the capacity uh, to be able to see us, uh, all the people that we want to see. Uh, we're very concerned about the people with substance uh, use and uh, their treatment and how they're coping. Um, so yeah, so there's this, there's a there's a lot of need, but I think. One thing that, that, um, that I can shine a light on is that telemedicine has really, really, really allowed us to like tenfold do the services that we did before, but even with that,
0: Um, We need services. And I'm afraid that's about all the time we have. Dr. Christopher King is an associate professor and the chair of the Department of Health Systems Administration at Georgetown University. Dr. Sharita Golden is a professor of medicine and the vice president and chief diversity officer at Johns Hopkins Medicine. And Maria Gomez is the founder, president, and CEO of Mary's Center. Thank you all for joining us. We've heard a lot tonight. And thank you all for showing up and participating. We hope you'll continue to engage us with us on this topic. Our next virtual town hall will be June 30th, so please watch out for details on that. Check back for more information at kojoshow.org. Before we go this evening, we'd like to say thank you to our wonderful engineers, the Kojo Show team, especially Mana Kashfi and Kurt Gardiner marketing and events, and to the rest of our colleagues at WAMU for taking the show on the virtual road. We're especially grateful to WAMU's General Manager J.J. Yore, as well as Andy McDaniel and Diane Hockenberry for their support. This Kojo in Your Community was presented by Sibley Memorial Hospital Johns Hopkins Medicine, and we appreciate their support. I'm Kojo Namdi.